And if you are, and you can't say hallelujah, well, we can talk about it after. But part of what we're seeing here, and by the way, just thank you again, you mothers. Uh, we close out Mother's Day, and uh, I think I can speak for all of us gentlemen in the room that it would be a boring, uninteresting world without our sisters, wouldn't it? And so we thank the Lord for his creation of womanhood and how he uses it in his church, his redeemed company. I want to come back to Ephesians chapter 1 just to kind of give you an idea of where we're headed. My initial intention before the Lord was to try to do an overview of all six of the chapters in our six sessions, and, and I'm already going to mess that up tonight because I don't think I'm going to get out of chapter 1 tonight, so we'll have two sessions in chapter 1. So we'll see how the Lord guides us, but the purpose being that the whole book is a unity, and, and what the Apostle Paul in his mind and the Holy Spirit using his mind is tying it all together, and so one of the things as we study the Word of God, we talk about synthetic analysis, right? We talk about synthesizing as well as analyzing. Analyzing, analytical study is looking at the parts. Synthesizing or synthetic study is looking at the whole. So while we look at the parts, individual words, word studies, and then phrases and sentences and verses, that's analytical study, but you never do that without relating the parts to the whole. Why? Because you end up being a cult. <laughs> That's how all of our cults have started. They've done analytical study and they haven't synthesized, haven't brought it back out and related the parts to the whole. And so you constantly have to be doing that. That's what's sometimes referred to as hermeneutical spiral, is that because you're always constantly looking at the the details and coming back and relating them to the whole. Back at the detail, relating to the whole, back and forth. So we're not going to focus so much on the analytical side of it because my understanding is that that's what you're going to be doing in, in a few weeks to come when you start in your ana analytical study. But I want to encourage the brethren that will be doing the analytical study to always be relating the parts to the whole and make sure they do that. Keep them on track. Make them do that because that is the way we need to study and handle the Word of God to handle it correctly. Right? And that's what Paul told Timothy, rightly divide, rightly handle the word of God as, as a, an approved worker, an approved workman, 2 Timothy 2.15. So we, we began in this hymn of praise to the Lord in verse 3 of chapter 1, right? And you notice there are a couple analytical details I want to point out before we move on to Seen it in the big picture here. But you notice how he plays on the word blessed. Blessed, verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us, same word in the Greek, with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. So this word, it, it's the Greek word eulogeo, which we get our word eulogy or eulogize from. And it means to logeo, speak and well, you speak well of, right? And that's what a eulogy is. It's, it's hopefully, <laughs> if it's done in a respectful way, it's speaking well of someone that we're eulogizing. Well, that's important to understand because I've had some brethren ask me over the years... 
and it's a good question to ask, but they look at they say, well, blessed be the God and Father. How can we bless God? I thought God blesses us. The, the greater blesses the lesser is the principle we see in the Bible. How is it that we bless God? Well, it's important to understand the meaning of that Greek word. See, that word has, has a range of meaning that includes blessing like, like uh, benefits that we receive, and that's how it is used in the two other places in verse 3. It's used three times, right, in verse 3. But the first time it's used, it has the idea of praise, speaking well of. So we speak well of the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, or we praise the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, or we adore and worship the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Do you see the sense of it? And that's how it is used even in the Old Testament. In the Greek version of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, it's often called. Many of the Psalms talk about, you know, bless the Lord, O my soul. Well, that's eulageo. That's, that's the same word here. It's the idea of speaking well of. And so I, I had a brother come up to me, and he, and he was a well-meaning brother. This was over ten years ago in another, another city, so it's nobody here. But, but I, in the Lord's Supper, I said, bless you, O Lord. And one of the times I was worshiping the Lord, and he came up after me and says, how is it that you bless the Lord? He blesses us. What do you mean, bless the Lord? I said, well, brother, the word, you need to... Do a little study here. The word bless can be used in that sense, in the sense of praise as well. Right? And so that's where you see how study is important. And we can avoid controversy or, or mishandling the word of God. So the Apostle Paul here is consistent. He's not doing something that is out of the realm of biblical nature to bless God. It's, but it's not in a sense of bringing any sort of benefits to God because God has all he needs. We sang a song earlier this morning that says that something about he gets some sort of need from us. Well, he doesn't need anything from us. He is all self-sufficient in himself. He's gracious to receive things like honor, worship, and praise from us in our service. He's gracious to receive it, and he will when it's done in the right spirit, right? So Paul is beginning then this great hymn of praise and he is announcing to himself and to the Ephesian Christians and to us, stop, think about what God has done and is doing and will do. Blessed praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he gives our Lord Jesus the full name, the full title, right? Our Lord Jesus Christ. And notice he says it's our Lord Jesus Christ. He's ours. Who has blessed us with every, not just a few, not just some, every spiritual blessing. But notice the emphasis is on spiritual blessing. Not material blessings, right? In the, under the old covenant, there, there are a lot of terminologies that Paul uses in Ephesians. He never outright mentions the new covenant like he does in Second Corinthians and in Hebrews. But the terminology he, he's using are benefits that flow out from the truth of the new covenant. And this is one of them. The blessings, they may include material things. We don't 
we don't take away from the fact that the Lord could bring material blessings, but we don't expect them. We're not under the blessings and cursings of Deuteronomy 28 that if we obey the Lord, that he's going to bring, you know, our, our flocks are going to be full and the wombs are going to carry and bring lots of children and, and, and we're going to have plenty of rain for the crops. All those things, the blessings and cursings of the law, we're not under that. And I'm glad. <laughs> I'm too inconsistent, and I'm pretty sure you are too, to really be safe under the blessings and cursings of the law. I'm happy to be under grace. Now, that doesn't mean that one brother gave me this over in Louisiana a few weeks ago, that, that because we're under grace, that's not a license to disgrace the name of the Lord, right? We don't want to think of grace in that kind of a way. And the right kind of thinking of biblical grace wouldn't think that way. Because Paul tells us in Titus 2, right, that grace teaches us certain things. And one of them is to say no to ungodliness, Grace instructs us. It teaches us that. But we received every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. That is, in the heavenly places, because that's where Christ is now. He has been exalted to heaven. He rose. He ascended. He's been exalted. He's at the Father's right hand waiting for his enemies to make a footstool for his feet, and he is in the exalted position, and our blessings are associated with who he is as the exalted Christ. That's important, because our world sees him still as somebody on a cross, maybe, inside their church. You know, I grew up in a church where he was on a cross the whole, all the time. And that's all we saw was him there on the cross. We didn't see the exalted Jesus, and, and we weren't taught the exalted Jesus. And guess what? We didn't live exalted lives either because of it. See, how you see the Lord Jesus will impact how you live. And then he brings in verse 4 this whole doctrine of election. And this word choosing or election is used several times in the New Testament. And there is a sense in which our Lord has chosen us individually as well as corporately. But the emphasis here, I would submit, is the corporate sense because he modifies it with the prepositional phrase in him. If that wasn't there we may be able to derive a different definition of it. But he's clearly saying, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. What does that mean? That means that when the Lord Jesus was rejected by the nation of Israel and, and crucified, God didn't say, oh no, what am I going to do now? I, he was supposed to be received as king. That's what my prophets all said, and they do say that. What am I going to do now? God didn't say that because before the Lord Jesus ever came in the incarnation, before Abraham was ever even born and started the nation, before the flood, before Adam and Eve, before the foundations of the world, God had always planned his church. He always planned that Jesus Christ would come. He knew that Jesus Christ would be rejected. He knew that Jesus Christ would be crucified. He knew that Jesus Christ would be resurrected 
ascended, exalted, that the Holy Spirit would come on Pentecost and begin this new body, this new organism, this new group of people that the Bible calls Christ's church. God knew all that from before the foundation of the world. Now, this is one of the clearest places we have in the New Testament where this truth is taught. It's so rich. It's so powerful because we begin to see the sovereign plan and outworking of God. God has a plan. He has a purpose. He says, according to the good pleasure of his will, at the end of verse 5, <clears throat> he just decided out of his good pleasure he wanted to do this. See? He planned this. What you and I participate in, I hope, as believers in the church of the living God, we realize from Ephesians chapter 1 that God planned this and that we have a role and a function that he planned long before we were ever created, let alone redeemed. Now that gives me great confidence in our Lord. That's one of the blessings it gives. It gives me great significance in our Lord, too, because as his child, as being born again through faith in Christ, I realize that that God had me in mind in the church, along with all other believers, all believers. All of this plan is for all believers in the church, which most of them are probably in heaven now because the church has been around some 2000 years. Now, this is, a, this is a bit of a rabbit trail, but I'll throw this out for your thinking and meditation, maybe. Not now, but tomorrow or in the, during the week. I was thinking just the other day, you know, the Apostle Paul and the Apostle Peter and the other apostles all died in the first century A.D. They'd been waiting some 2,000 years for glorification. Do you think they're a little anxious? <laughs> Would you be? You know, we think about how many days we have in our lives on earth, and then after we die, how long will we have to wait before the rapture occurs and we are given our glorified bodies, united with the apostles and the other believers in the church? But all believers from the day of Pentecost in 30 A.D. till 2014, in every nation and every tribe all over planet Earth, that is his church. That's how big God is. It's not confined to one sect, some one religious idea, one religious leader. It's not confined to one city, one nation. It is multinational, multi-ethnic, multi-varieted, and it's been around a long time. And it's a good reminder to me and to you that God's in control of this and he knows what he's doing. And he invites us still as believers, if you're alive, you can participate. You can participate in it. What a privilege that is. How awesome that is. And when we begin to think like that, it changes our whole outlook and perspective on life. And our priorities, what I want to be doing, because I begin to have what we talk about as an eternal perspective. Most of us live just from week to week, don't we? In the engineering office, it was 
thank God it's Friday because, you know, they, they were living for Friday because then they, as soon as 5 o'clock hit, we could go party. And you could party until Sunday night at 3 in the morning or 5 in the morning, whatever time it took before you had to go to work and go to Blue Monday and start all over again. And that's the cycle that the world lives for week to week. Pleasures of this life. The same pleasures that Moses gave up. The pleasures of Egypt in Hebrews chapter 11. Moses gave that up to suffer affliction with the people of God. Why? He had changed his thinking. He had an eternal perspective now. He wasn't living for the here and now only. We don't check out from the here and now only. We still have to pay our bills. We still have to put food on the table. We still have to take care of ourselves and maintain things, but our perspective isn't just limited to that. Our perspective is so much bigger if we're believers and if we recognize the truth of this. So just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him. And that's something that currently, as he'll go on to in chapter 4, 5, and 6, Living lives of holiness and blamelessness before him is something we aspire to now, but don't get to completely. I think here he's looking at the final glorified picture when we will be holy and without blame before him in our glorified bodies. And, and the prepositional phrase, in love, some translations put it with verse 4, like mine, and some put it with verse 5. And there's a big debate in your commentaries over, well, you know, which one is the right one? Well, I'll submit this to you. Both of them could be right. It works both ways. If you put it with verse 4, then his choosing us is according to his love, isn't it? And that's consistent with biblical teaching. We love him who first loved us. But if you put it with verse 5, it fits with that too because it was out of his love that he predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ, you see. Now another thing that is important about studying certain words, there's a great division in the history of the church over this word predestination. And it still divides, it's divided assemblies a few places across the country. Some have actually closed their doors because of the whole issue of the debate over predestination. And it would be so simple if we would just follow the Bible instead of some man's writings. Men's writings have errors in them, don't they? They're written by sinful men, and sinful men make mistakes, don't we? <laughs> Are there any mistakes in the Bible, though? None. And if you do a word study, I invite you to check me out on it. Before you pull out your Institutes of the Christian Religion written by a certain man, pull out your concordance and look up this word predestined where it's used in the Bible. And every place it's used in the Bible, it's used of believers. And what they are predestined to, in other words, pre means marked beforehand, God had in mind beforehand that believers in Jesus Christ would have a certain destiny. That's what the word means. It doesn't ever, it's never used in the sense of someone who's an unbeliever and they're destined to be an unbeliever and go to the bad place because God said, you're not one of my elect. The Bible never teaches that. 
Our God's not like that. Like one brother said, what kind of love is that? God is love. What kind of love is that? That would even predestine one person in one nation, in one tribal group, to a lost eternity because he didn't choose them. It's a horrible teaching. It disrespects the word of God. It disrespects the person of God. It disrespects the character of God. It disrespects his church. And I would say that to that brother's face too if he were still alive. But he's been dead a long time. We make mistakes sometimes and we need to own up to them. Predestined to adoption. He's talking about believers. In him. He's already said in Christ, in verse 3, in verse 4, in Him. He predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to Himself according to the good pleasure of His will. He's talking about what we as believers have been destined to. In other words, this is His plan For believers in Jesus Christ. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, this is you. And so I would submit, although many focus on the word election in verse 4, and some want to focus on the word predestination in verse 5, I would focus on the word adoption in verse 5 as really the key word in this section in verses 3 through 6. Adoption. I use the word sonship this morning because that's what adoption means. It means we've been adopted into the full rights and privileges of sons of God, even though we weren't that. We were sons of Adam. But he adopted us through faith in Christ, and that's why we need to be born again and born, in a sense, out of Adam and into Christ. That's what happens when we're converted. And then we realize, as we're taught and discipled, that we've been adopted as sons to the praise of the glory of His grace. It was His grace that made us that, by which He made us accepted or highly favored in the Beloved One, which which is Jesus Christ. It's in capital letters in my Bible, and rightly so. The Beloved One is Jesus Christ. We've been made acceptable through Him. Acceptable to whom? To God. Were we acceptable to Him before? No. Could we just walk into His presence before? No. What happened to Nadab and Abihu when they just walked into His presence before? They turned into human wicks, didn't they? They were burned completely to ash. You don't just walk into the presence of God. We're talking about the true God here, the God of the Bible, the God who made heaven and earth. But it is such a rich, freeing, powerful truth to understand that you and I are finally accepted, highly favored. Because of Jesus Christ's work for you and I on the cross. There are so many in our world today that seek to be accepted amongst their peer groups, don't they? And that can be a real bondage. Or to be accepted in their religious group. And that can be a real bondage. You know, they want a title or, or you know, they want to be <coughs> recognized as some sort of leader. 
want to have their faces on the on the board, the bulletin board, you know, the big conference, you know, want to tell you when they go to conferences, all because they, they feel unaccepted and they feel insecure and they want to be accepted. <laughs> if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you already are. You don't have to play that game. You don't have to suffer under the bondage of guilt anymore. You used to, but not anymore. You see how liberating this is? When we take hold of it by faith and live on the basis of it, it'll change everything. And that's what Paul's hoping for these Ephesians Christians. And he's hoping it for you and I too. But then he moves in verse 7 to begin to talk about redemption. So I would say, submit to you, the key word in verses 3 through 6 is adoption or being brought into God's family or sonship. And the rights and privileges thereof. But then beginning in verse 7. All the way down through verse 14. The key word will be the word he uses in verse 7. Redemption. And he'll use it again in verse 14. Where he brackets the whole section. With this idea of being redeemed. Well what does the word redeem mean? It means to be bought out of slavery. Were you and I in slavery? Before we were saved, we probably didn't realize it, but we were. We were in the most horrible form of bondage imaginable. Now, he's going to expand on that word in chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, and then again in in verses 11 and following, but just look at what he says in the first few verses of chapter 2. And you, I call this the you-who chapter, because there's a you-who in verse 2, in verse 1 of chapter 2, and a you-who in in verse uh, 11. You who were dead in trespasses and sins, in verse 1, in verse 11, you who are called uncircumcision by what is called circumcision and so forth. But coming back to verse 1, you... He made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. What does he say you were? Dead. Can he use a dead person very well? I mean, is that something that he can really use? Only if he changes them. In which you once walked according to the course of this world. This is you, my fellow Christian, before you were saved, according to the prince of the power of the air, that's Satan, the spirit who now works, even still, in the sons of disobedience. What kind of disobedience? Disobedient to the gospel, that is, the lost. They still follow the spirit of this world, the prince of the power of the air. They're in bondage, among whom... Also, and then Paul includes himself, we all once conducted ourselves in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath just as the others. Children of wrath. That is, what does that mean? That means that what was ahead for us in terms of our destiny was the wrath of God. Amen? Isn't that what he's saying? Children of wrath. Children who belong to wrath. Children who had wrath ahead. Do you know what? Not anymore. Because someone took that wrath for us. And someone had to take it for us in order for us to be delivered from it. 
That's what the word redemption begins to mean. There's, there are a lot of details that flow out from redemption, and some of those are mentioned there in chapter 1, verse 7 to 14. And the first one he lists in verse 7 of chapter 1 is the forgiveness of sins. Forgiven forever. No Old Testament saint understood eternal forgiveness of sins. They understood temporal forgiveness at the sacrifices when they were offered, and especially on Yom Kippur, on the Day of Atonement. But guess what? The very day after Yom Kippur, they had to wait 365 more days to have that assurance. It only lasted for the day of Yom Kippur. It was temporary, see, because Christ had not come yet. It had to be perfect blood. The blood of animals and goats will not take away sin, Hebrews tells us, right? Not one sin. But he says, in him, Jesus Christ, verse 7, we have, not we might have, not we will have, current possession. We have redemption through his blood. <coughs> Meaning <coughs> there had to be a sacrifice. This is the cross, right? He had to make the sacrifice in the shedding of his blood because apart from the shedding of blood, there's no remission. The forgiveness of sins according to the riches of His grace. And this is one of some six times, I think, in the book of Ephesians, He'll use the word riches, wealth. He has an enormous supply of grace, He's saying, the riches of it, which He made to abound toward us in all wisdom and prudence. My Bible says intelligence would be the idea the wisdom would be more the, the general uh, aspect of, of uh, truth and, and, and prudence or intelligence would be specific, subjective truth, objective truth versus subjective truth. In other words, wisdom is, is God's intelligence towards everything. But then that's used in specific situations and that's what, would, what he refers to as intelligence here. Both those. He's going to develop that later in the letter. And how does that wisdom and intelligence work out. What's it in regard to? He says in verse 8, or verse 9, having made known to us, what? What has he made known to us? Say it. The mystery of his will. Now when he uses the word mystery, he means a truth that was always in God's mind. He's going to define it in chapter 3, so I'm not inventing this. We'll get to it. It was always in God's mind, but hadn't been revealed before to man. It's truth, but hadn't been revealed yet. You understand that God's revelation of himself in the Bible is progressive. It's progressive revelation. What he revealed to Noah... And what he revealed to Abraham weren't the same. Abraham got a lot more than Noah did, according to the biblical record, and that's all we have. And David got a lot more than either Abraham or Moses. David got the Davidic covenant. We, you know, through David, we found out specifically what family Messiah was going to come from and what city he was going to be born in, Bethlehem. But Paul got a lot more than any of those brethren did. 
I believe he got it on Mount Sinai too, but that's another whole study in itself from the book of Galatians. What a powerful thing to think about, though. The same mountain where the law was given, church truth was given as well to two different individuals in totally different time frames. But he says, he's made known to us the mystery of his will. Now, follow over in verse in, in chapter 6, near the end of the letter, and he will, in verse 19, use this same phrase, but use a little different description of it. He says, Pray for me that utterance may be given to me, that I may open my mouth boldly to make known what? The mystery of his will. Different wording. The mystery of the gospel. But the gospel is the outworking of his will. You with me? So he's talking about the same thing. And it's the same thing he's going to be describing this whole letter. He wants us to know what he has planned out for us in his church. He wants us to know. It's so important. Someone said to, to me some time ago, if this message is so great, it is great, isn't it? Ought it not be preached everywhere? <laughs> if this message is as great as you say it is, by the way, do you think this is a great message? Not this, not this message, but I mean this message, the message of the Apostle Paul. And if it, if it really is that great, Shouldn't it be proclaimed? And I know you believe that because you participate that in that in a lot of different ways. That's what Paul's asking for here in prayer. By the way, this is a great prayer request to add to your Wednesday night prayer. It ought to be up there every Wednesday night in my view. But I have different views on that sometimes. But I share them sometimes with elders as I travel around. But verse 19, that utterance may given to all his children. That's you. <laughs> utterance. Words from your mouth. <laughs> and in what kind of way that we may be open, that we open my mouth boldly to make known wherever he puts me. The mystery of the gospel. You ready for that? Buckle up. It's going to be a ride of your life, but it'll be a venture you'll never cease from being amazed by. That's what the Lord has for you and for me. It's just a question of whether we'll enter into it or not. So coming back to chapter 1, he's going to elaborate on this a little more. Verse 9, having made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, he again emphasizes good pleasure like he did in verse 5, which he purposed in himself. <laughs> he purposed it. So he has a plan that he purposed in himself. And if God purposes in himself to do something, is it not going to happen? Is there a chance it might fail? If God purposed for us to be a testimony for him in this world, in his church, is there a chance that would ever fail? The stock market may fail. Your job may fail. Sad to say, but even some of your most trusted friends may fail you. But God will never fail. Amen? So this is what you want to invest your priorities in, isn't it? Something that don't, don't fail. 
and won't fail and can't fail? You see, one of the things that the overarching kind of uh, themes that's working through the epistle of Ephesians is God's purposed will, which he's described here, and the schemes of Satan in chapter 6, right? So we learn in chapter 6, we learn in chapter 1, God has a plan and a purpose that he's purposing himself to do. And we get to chapter 6 and we find out we have to wear this armor, the armor of God, and that this evil one is trying to trip us up and is opposing the will of God. Does that hard for you to imagine that a creature who thinks he's God would oppose the will of God? But that's what he's doing. The prince of the power of the air that is now at work in the sons of disobedience is opposing this will of God. He's working in your mind right now, tonight, to, so that you don't understand this. And I pray that we get victory. That's why Brother Matt prayed earlier that we would have a victory here and that the Holy Spirit would overcome that opposition because your flesh and the enemy of God is at work to keep us from entering into what God has for us. And God respects your will and mine because he made us in his image. And he will not force his will on us. Does he have the power to do that? Yes. Does he have the authority to do that? Yes. But he has chosen not to exercise that power and authority. He wants us to want to be with him and to want to do his will. That's important because we just talked about his sovereignty here. And that's where our finite, you know what I mean by finite, right? My brain only goes from here to here inside this cranium of this skull, and it is finite. It's not infinite. And yours too. We have limitations in our understanding of the purposes of God. But God doesn't have those limitations. And so God in his sovereignty wills something to happen and yet we see things happening that are not consistent with the sovereign purposes of God. And we don't understand that. <clears throat> but we have to leave that with God, don't we? There are things that we don't understand in our world. Why things happen the way they do. Why someone who leaves their family leaves their job, leaves the comforts of this life to go to a foreign land to serve him, and then suffers being tortured and killed. One spouse lives, one spouse dies. And they did it for the Lord in testimony to him, in obedience to his will. How does that fit in with the sovereign plan of God? We don't know. And what we don't know, we submit to gladly. Gladly because we know his character. And the things that we don't understand in our world, we fall back on the truth of his character. The Bible says God is good and always does good. Do you believe that? 
I hope you do. The enemy, I know he tells you this because he does me too. When things don't work out according to my plans, and that's happened about four or five times in the last two years, some really big ones that have happened, the things that I just thought for sure was going to go this way, and I was wrong. I misread it. And I fell back on the truth. You know what? God is good. I better not judge him. I better not question him. I'm the one that messed up, not him. That's what we have to do. That's what we have to remind ourselves. Because there will be things happen that we don't understand why they work out the way they do. In people's lives. Real people. Hurting people. People we care about. And we have to leave that with God. And that's where the whole element of prayer comes in. And that's where we have these two monumental prayers in the New Testament right here in Ephesians. <laughs> two of the biggest prayers in the New Testament are right here in this letter. In a letter that's talking about the sovereignty of God, we have two of the biggest prayers. What's that telling you? That just because God is sovereign, that doesn't mean we don't pray. And that doesn't mean that our prayer doesn't have effect in the purposes of God if we pray according to the Holy Spirit, and that's in this letter too. So he says, what is the good pleasure of his purpose that he's purposed in himself? In verse 9, he tells us, verse 10, that in the dispensation, that's the word okinomia, it, it can be translated the stewardship or the administration. Dispensation is a... a consistent definition of that word. It's not some sort of theological word that we're trying to impose on the text. You know, I've heard people say that, well, you know, you dispensationalists, you, you put that word in there. It's okonomia. Well, that's the way the word can be translated. But if you want to use administration, go ahead, brother or sister. It won't bother me. If you want to use stewardship, go ahead. But don't miss out on the truth here while you're worried about this one word that in the dispensation of the fullness of the times. And that word times there is kairos, not chronos. It could be translated the seasons or the ages. He's not talking about chronological time. He's talking about epochs of time, ages of time, seasons of time. And that's where we get the idea of dispensations of time. That in the fullness of the times. What does that mean? Because before Christ came, it was in the partials. God revealed himself in the partials in the tabernacle, in the Davidic kingdom, and in the temple, and all of that. But here it's the fullness of the times. He might gather together in one all things in Christ. That's God's purpose. That he's purposed in himself. He's going to gather everything together and put it under Jesus Christ's headship. In other words, he's going to be king. <laughs> you okay with that? Our young people have some of their spiritual songs they sing and talk about King Jesus. Well, I'm with you, brother or sister. I mean, some people say, well, he's not king yet. Well, in some senses he is, in some senses he isn't, right? He's not king in Jerusalem, but he's king in my heart. I hope he is in yours if you're a believer. And if he isn't, why not? What are you holding back from him? <laughs> Doesn't he deserve to be? Doesn't he deserve to be king? Because God says it's his purpose that it's going to all be under Christ at one time. And I can't wait for that day. 
It'll begin in the millennial kingdom for a thousand years. He's determined a time while Satan is locked up and then Satan will be released at the end of that time and there'll be the great white throne judgment. There's going to be opposition to him after a thousand years of Christ reigning on earth and the blessings. You and I are going to be reigning with him. That's what I'm training myself for now. I hope you are. I'm going to be reigning. I'm training for reigning. That's what this is. I'm in school. Even at 58. Still going to school. But it's school in the biblical discipleship of Jesus Christ. His school of training. And it's preparing me for something that's eternal. Not a temporary degree or a trophy I can put on a wall or on a plaque or on a desk. I'll be reigning with the living God for all eternity. And that's a perspective thing. That's a worldview thing that he wants us to get. And that's part of what Ephesians is communicating. And then he adds, which are in heaven and which are on earth. So not just the things of earth, things of heaven too, which includes Satan, the demonic world. He's going to talk about the principalities and powers and so forth. It's all under Christ. God has decided that. Satan's not happy with that. Are you? I hope so. And then he adds again, just in case we missed in Christ in the middle of verse 10, he adds at the end of verse 10, in him. (laughs) In him. It's all about him. And we should love to sing to him and worship him. And worship the Father through Him. But it's only because of Him that we have any access to God. In Him, he adds again in verse 11, we also have. Okay, so he's giving the benefits of redemption. He's already mentioned some of them. Understanding the purposes of God in this dispensation, in the fullness of times. And and then he says, we've also obtained an inheritance. Really? Did you know you had an inheritance? Incorruptible? Undefiled? Moth can't destroy it? Being predestined, there's that word again, according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will. He doesn't need any advice from you and me. He doesn't need any advice from our president or for the head of the Kremlin or the head of the UN. He doesn't need any advice from Satan. He doesn't need any advice from anyone else. It's according to the counsel of his will. See, all of this is to give us confidence that he, he's got a plan and a purpose and he's going to work it out. And he is working it out. That we, Paul says, who first trusted in Christ, he's speaking about himself and his fellow Jews because the church began in Jerusalem, right? Acts chapter 2, it began with only Jews in Jerusalem. All the people there, the Bible's clear about that, were Jewish people. They may have been from other parts of the Roman Empire, but they were Jewish. They were there for the Jewish festival of Pentecost. And they were the first who trusted in Christ. That's true. And they should be to the praise of his glory. Then he adds in verses 13 and 14, the Gentiles. The Gentile Pentecost occurs in chapter 10 of the book of Acts when Cornelius, the Roman centurion, 
comes to faith in Christ. And Peter himself, he's so surprised, he, he, he couldn't believe it, you know. <laughs> this Gentile Roman centurion, head of a hundred soldiers, he's, he's going to be saved just like us. And he gets the Holy Spirit just like us. And then, and then the church had an inquisition, and they asked Peter about it when he went back in chapter 11. You know, well, what? He said, well, that's why I brought these other seven brethren with me. Smart, Peter. I got witnesses. They saw it. The same thing that happened to us on the day of Pentecost in chapter 2 happened to Cornelius and his friends and his household in chapter 10. That's testimony from Peter and his friends. So Paul says in verse 13, in him, there it is again, in who? Are you getting tired of seeing the emphasis on Jesus Christ here? Not me. Not me. He's the one that died on the cross for me. I'm not tired of talking about him. I'm not tired of, of exalting him. His face was marred more than any man. His body was lacerated. He suffered and died for me and for you if you're trusting in him. Do you ever get tired of talking about him? I can't believe that. That anyone who professes to be a Christian gets tired of talking about him. That gets tired of celebrating the Lord's Supper. There's a disconnect somewhere. Right? Am I wrong about that? But anyway, in Him, you also trusted after you heard the word of truth. That's consistent with Romans chapter 10. Faith cometh by hearing. Hearing by the word of God. So you trusted Him, not before you heard the gospel, only after you heard the word of truth, right? The gospel of your salvation, and in whom also, having believed when you did trust him, something happened to you. You were sealed by God. Boom. He put a stamp on you and said, you're mine. I bought you. That's redemption again, isn't it? You're mine. Now, in the old days, in the Roman Empire... When someone went to the slave market and bought a slave, they branded them to remind the slave and to remind anybody else that wanted to have them as a slave, he's mine, she's mine, property belongs to me, right? Well, we've been sealed, but not with something like an outward brand, something even more intimate and special. The Spirit of God Himself. And He's called the Holy Spirit of what? Promise. Why? Because it's a down payment of what's to come. He is a down payment of what's to come. So He says in verse 14, Who is the guarantee, down payment, guarantee of our inheritance. You talk about earnest money contract, right? When we try to buy something and we, we'll put an earnest money contract, we're putting a down payment. By, by signing that earnest money contract, we're saying what? I'm going to pay the rest of it. I'm putting my whole reputation on that and my bank account, right? Because they can come seize it if you don't do it. They can put a lien on you. He's the guarantee of our inheritance, the same inheritance he mentioned earlier, until the redemption of the purchased possession. So that word redemption occurs again, and it's a purchased possession that's consistent with how we define the word, isn't it? It's something he purchased. What was the cost of that? In verse 7, through his blood, right? 
So the cost of this purchase was the blood of Jesus Christ shed on Calvary. God paid that price. Jesus paid that price. And now we're his possession because he purchased us out of the slave market of sin. And we're no longer under the dominion of sin. Sin shall not be our master anymore because we're no longer under the law. We're under grace, you see. We've been purchased by Christ's blood. And that's something we have to believe and understand in our minds before it does anything to change our lives. And God wants it to change our lives. That's what chapter 4, 5, and 6 is going to get into. And he's going to get into some very specific details, too, about life, isn't he? Husbands and wives, children and parents, slaves and masters. He's going to get very specific. Human relationships, how we're changed. So he says he's the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. When will that redemption be complete? When, I don't have any chocolate bars on me. But when will that, Dave, and Dave used all his, I saw the empty sack. When will that redemption be complete according to the Bible? Come on, you all know this. Yeah, marriage, supper, the lamb, our glorification. Yeah. And that's in Romans chapter 8, the redemption of our bodies. These bodies haven't been redeemed yet. Did you know that? Look in the mirror. (laughs) They haven't been redeemed yet. They're still suffering the ravages of sin every day. They're decaying, corrupting. But I have a body reserved in heaven for me. How about you? And it'll never decay. It'll never corrupt. It'll never suffer pain. Because there'll be no pain. What an encouragement that is when we're ministering to someone suffering. Brother Bob... And Judy and I had the opportunity to be with Flo Alberry just a few days before she went to glory, I think it was. It turned out to be. We didn't know that. I think she ministered to us more than we ministered to her. But we were trying to minister to her, and she was ministering right back. That sister was singing hymns right out of the black hymnal right from her memory. And she was already fading out, leaving that old shell, as Paul calls it in Second Corinthians 5. It's just a tent. It's just a temporary shell. And that leads him, and I'm just going to, I'm sorry, just take two more minutes just to introduce the next message, which will be on Wednesday night in the will of the Lord. And we'll look at 115 to 223, and we'll go in a little bit into chapter 2 as well, because chapter 2 is a continuation. Really, 115, I believe, goes all the way through the end of chapter 3. It's all one continuous expansion of thought. But look how he begins in verse 15. In light of what he has just said about the sovereign plan and purposes of God and what he has done to us because of Jesus Christ and his shed blood, he says, Therefore, I also, Paul, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for the saints. There's the Christian life. Your faith in the Lord Jesus, that's the vertical Your love for the saints, that's the horizontal. They both go together, by the way. Someone says, well, you know, I have faith in Christ, but I don't love the saints. Well, they didn't get the true gospel then. That's inconsistent with the Bible, see. 
If you have faith in the Lord Jesus, then you're going to have a love for the saints because they both go together. That's the two big commandments in the law, right? Love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love thy neighbor as thyself. The Lord defined the law that way. The two tables of it. So Paul says, I do not cease to give thanks for you, first of all. That's a great thing to remember, that we give thanks. Do you ever stop in your day and just thank the Lord for some of your brethren here in the meeting? It's not automatic that they ever got saved. It's not automatic that they're still breathing because we could die at any moment. He's in control of our breath, right? And it's not automatic that they're here in your church. They could be in a lot of other different places and locations. Just to thank the Lord for one another. Making mention of you in my prayers, Paul says. And that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ... What if, if, you, if you could ask the Apostle Paul, if he was standing right here and you could ask him, Paul, what is it you, if you could limit your prayer to one prayer request, what would you pray for me? You know what he would say? That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him. That's what I would pray for you. Is that what we pray for on Wednesday night? This ought to be at the top of our list. It's at the top of Paul's list. That you would have a teachable spirit that you could grow in your understanding of the wisdom and revelation of God and the knowledge of Him. And that knowledge is a personal epigenosis, a personal intimate knowledge. He's going to expand on that. We'll look at how he expands on that in the verses that follow that. There are three specific things that he mentions in the next couple of verses and how that works out. They all begin with, with the uh, phrase that you may know what is. What, that you may know what is in verse 19. That you may know what is in the following verses. That you may know by experience, not just by theory, but by personal experience. This is what God has for us. I hope you're interested. I hope it stirs your spirit like it stirs mine to realize that He has brought us into something enormous, bigger than the material creation around us, which is pretty big and pretty amazing. This is enormous. This is magnificent. This is Awesome. I know our young people like to use that word a lot. I try to limit it just to God, but I'll limit it to the plan of God too. Awesome with a capital A. It's awesome what he wants to do. You remember? And I'll close with this. People of Israel had come out of Egypt. They'd crossed the Red Sea. They were at the foot of Mount Sinai. They had that failure at the foot of Mount Sinai where they didn't trust waiting on Moses. He went up the mountain to get the law and they, didn't, they got tired of waiting on him and, and they made that golden calf. And Aaron, his brother, took the lead in that of all things. He said, I don't know what happened. I melted this gold and out came this calf. I don't know what happened. He knew what happened. <laughs> he made a false god. In the midst of that, Moses goes back up the mountain and intercedes for the people. And God says, I will not Take them away. I've listened to your prayers. 
I will continue to use you and take you into the land. And you know what he says in Exodus 34? He says, for it is an awesome thing that I will do with you. It is an awesome thing that I will do with you if you let me. You read the conquest in the book of Joshua. Was it not an awesome thing that God did? It's staggering what he did. In the 13th century B.C., it's staggering what he did. But he did it. And I'm applying that verse by way of application to you and me tonight. God wants to do an awesome thing through you, child of God. Are you going to let him? Am I going to let him? I trust we will. Father, we thank you, O Lord, for your scriptures. And we thank you for the encouragement they bring. Oh, what an awesome thing it is just to know you. To be free from guilt of our sins and our failures and our frailties and our weaknesses. To know with confidence, like Brother prayed earlier, to know with confidence there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That we are eternally loved and safe with you because of him. But then we find you have an inheritance that begins now and goes on to eternity. You have a plan and a purpose for us. Help us to want that in our lives, each one of us individually and as a group, corporately and collectively. That you might receive the praise that is worthy of your name. And that the Lamb who was slain might receive the rewards of his sufferings. We give you thanks now as you go with us. Bring us home safely. We ask in the Lord Jesus' name. Amen.